it's interesting because it's not inherent DNA that these successful people are able to focus better. The main thing they're able to do is that they have systems and processes in place to say no. They say no to almost everything. And the reason that is allows them to say yes to the big things. An epiphany for me was listening to them. And I go, okay, gosh, this is the main differentiators. They just basically say no to almost everything that comes in. And they're not relying on their willpower to say no, that they've got systems and sometimes people in place to say no for them. It's one small step for man. Lift off. We have we a Good afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Super You Podcast. It's the podcast designed to unlock and unleash your superpower. I'm Jake with Equal Man Studios. Luck equals preparation plus opportunity. That is our quote of the week. So make today about setting yourself up for luck's arrival. Today we're sharing an interview from the Meaningful Life Podcast between Eric Qualman and the show's host, Andrew G. Marshall. Eric talks about how to do the important things rather than doing too many things. In fact, doing less is likely to leave you more successful and more fulfilled. If you don't already know Andrew G. Marshall, he's the UK's best-known marital therapist. He's the author of the international bestseller, I Love You, But I'm Not In Love With You. In total, he's written 20 titles on love, relationships, and infidelity. Andrew uses his training in radio and journalism to interview witnesses for what makes life meaningful on the Meaningful Life podcast. We are so grateful to have been on the show. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you to all of our listeners. We love hearing how the Super You podcast has enriched your life. Keep those reviews and messages coming. It's fuel on our fire to entertain, educate, and empower people to their best lives. Without further ado, here's Eric Wellman, you know him as Equal Man, and Andrew G. Marshall. We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. Are you exhausted? Is your life overscheduled? According to my witness today, being busy is a choice and not a wise one. Eric Kuhlman is a best-selling author and keynote speaker and has performed in 55 countries and reached 50 million people. He has been voted the second most likable author in the world. Most importantly for this podcast, he is the author of the book The Focus Project, The Not-So-Simple Task of Doing Less. Welcome, Eric. I was going to ask you about your childhood and how focused you were, but I wonder if small children are naturally focused. Is it more an adult problem? What do you think? Ah, that's a good question. I think when you're little, you're super focused as a kid because you think about that shiny object that's right in front of you. 
you know what you want. If you can't get it, then you usually vocally cry about it. But then as you get older, there's so many just different opportunities that are in front of you that it becomes more of a challenge. Now, that being said, I've got two little kids that it's inherently as they get beyond toddler stage, they are unfocused. If you ever fly with a kid on a plane, their attention spans about <laughs> 10 seconds before they want to grab that magazine that's in the front. They don't even have magazines anymore that they can play with. So there's nothing to play with on the plane because they've gotten rid of everything. So when they're that age, like two and under, they're a nightmare to have on the plane when they can walk. But then when they get older, then yeah, they, they need distraction. So I'd say it's the same. It's inherently in there. So growing up, who were your positive role models and who were your negative role models? Yeah, it's a good question. The positive ones for sure jump in ahead right away is that my parents, I've been really lucky to have great parents. And then uh, my two brothers, my older brother was a great role model. Then I played basketball at Michigan State University. And so Coach Izzo, who's a Hall of Fame coach and still coaching, uh, he was a great role model just to look at him and see see what's going on. In terms of negative role models, I can't say a specific name, but just watching in the news people that would do things that would cause themselves pain, their family pain. And so just trying to learn from others like, whoa, whoa, we don't want to go down that road. Look what that choice led to for that guy, that girl. Like an example would be if you say tennis, like I played a lot of tennis growing up, played a lot of sports. If you look at Jennifer Capriati, at the age of 13, she won one of the major tournaments. And then her world kind of implodes because she's not ready for it at 13. And so that's a good example to look at, not only as a child growing up, but now that I'm an adult with kids that are playing sports, to know that side of, okay, that's a good example of maybe we don't put them into tennis. And if you watch the recent film with the Williams sisters, that's why their dad held off because of what happened to Capriati. So sometimes you can learn from others uh, in that negative way and figure out, okay, let's learn from their mistakes. And what about your father? What did you learn about focus from your father? Yeah, so my dad is great in terms of like, he wants things to be perfect. So I remember going to his retirement even, and they're talking about, oh, Jay, we've got to have signs. He takes over this whole organization. And he goes, we need to move the executive parking. The best spot shouldn't be for the executives. Those should be for our clients. So let's move that parking so the executives should have the worst spots. They should walk the furthest. <laughs> and let's have, like he is an executive, right? So he goes, no, we've got to make sure that we have the spots for the, the clients. And at this reunion party, it's funny because they're going, but then you know, Jay Qualman, the question becomes, how high should the signs be? What color should they be? What should they say? And so it was that kind of focus to make things correct, make it right. But also the focus, the initial focus of, hey, it's not about me, it's about others. And so how do I focus on the needs of others? Now, we think that being busy is something to be proud of. You know, what did you do this weekend if you flew to Amsterdam and you saw the Anne Frank house and you saw the Van Gogh and you went to a great club, then you get a big tick. If you say, I do nothing much, then it's a sad face. How much of this is a wider cultural problem rather than an individual problem? Yeah, it's definitely both. I'd say it starts at the cultural level that you're trying to one-up your neighbour the biggest problem from an individual perspective is we think busy versus big. 
Busy meaning that I've got my calendar jam-packed. Busy meaning that I'm going to make sure I handle all these things that I think I have to handle. And then all of a sudden, you're not getting those big things done in your life. So then a year slips by, two years slips by, three years slips by, and you wanted to write that movie script. You haven't even written a word for it. Or you wanted to learn to play guitar and you haven't stroked one chord. And so that's what happens to us is we focus on the busy versus the big. So what made you decide to focus on writing your book about focus? Yeah, no, it's funny. A little background on me. So for the last 12 years, I've mainly written books and I speak on stage. We own an edutainment company. So the reason I tell the story is because essentially I'm the owner of the company. And so in theory, that would mean that I'd have whatever time I wanted to do with whatever I wanted to do. But ironically, at the end of each day, my hair was on fire And I'm sitting there going, what is this thing I built? It's kind of controlling me. And if I'm having this issue, when I don't really technically, we all have bosses, but technically I should have it the easiest where I can dictate what my time looks like for the day. If I'm having this issue day after day, then I've got to imagine others are having it. So I started with a readership of one, me. I need to do this research just because I started to get excited. What if I just was able to focus on kind of those big blocks versus all these busy blocks that I'm doing each and every day. And then I started talking to different people. I'd talk to a school teacher. I'd talk to a stay-at-home mom or dad. I'd talk to a CEO. I'd talk to a president of a country. And the same thing held true across all these avenues that the really successful people, when I talked to them, I said, what's the key to your success? And they say, well, I'm a little bit better at focusing than most people. And I go, what's the biggest challenge to stay on top? And they said, maintaining that focus. And so it was a daily challenge for everyone that I spoke with. And so I go, okay, I'm going to start with this book, Readership of One, Me. But it sounds like everyone's wrestling with this. And then once I was in the process, anyone I spoke to, that was their number one thing. Man, if I only had more time, if only I could focus on this rather than that. Oh, I can focus on my big things once the kids are in college. Or I've got to stay in this job right now because my kids are young. And so it was really interesting just to hear the different dynamics that people were wrestling with. And so that's why I was really excited to write the Focus Project. And then obviously during the middle of it, all of a sudden this pandemic hits. So there's the match thrown on that gasoline when it comes to Focus, because now people are homeschooling. They're trying to learn how to work virtually. And so they've got all these additive things that were added to their plate. So they had no idea where to focus and the mental health was being impacted negatively. And so companies that I spoke for, instead of me speaking on digital leadership, said, hey, I've heard you wrote this book on focus. Actually, that's what we need. We need these guys to focus. And so it's been a fascinating ride. So do you think focus is a talent or is it something that we can learn to do? It's something that we learn to do. It's interesting because it's not inherent DNA that these successful people are able to focus better. The main thing they're able to do is that they have systems and processes in place to say no. They say no to almost everything. And the reason that is allows them to say yes to the big things. An epiphany for me was listening to them. And I go, okay, gosh, this is the main differentiators. They just basically say no to almost everything that comes in. And they're not relying on their willpower to say no, that they've got systems and sometimes people in place to say no for them. So it's really fascinating to see that side of it. And then real quick on the previous question, my first book, Socialnomics, this is back when MySpace was the biggest social media player. And that book was written because I go, oh my gosh, people can't see that 
social media is going to change the way we do business. It's going to change the way the government, elected officials, it's going to change everything on how we communicate. And so I wrote that book telling people, hey, you need to get into this digital space. You need to kind of figure this out. And then I started to see, oh my gosh, people got way too into their phones. And so in some small (laughs) way, the focus project is that anti-venom to the original book, Social Nomics, and basically telling people the answer is in the middle. It's in the balance. But I had to write this focus project book to say, get out of your phone. (laughs) If you want to get big (laughs) things done in life, you've got to figure out how to focus in these particular areas. So one minute you're saying, you know, focus on this internet. It's really important. The next minute you say, don't focus so much. Yeah, like you went way too far. Oh, hold on. You know, (laughs) hold on. So you have a great equation, which I'm going to, to share, and perhaps you'd like to talk it through for me. Focus equals achievement equals fulfillment equals happiness. So talk me through that. Yeah, so if you look at people want to be happy. So there's tons of books. I'll walk it back the opposite way. But there's a ton of people, everyone out there is like, how do I have happiness? And if you look at the research around happiness, it's really about fulfillment. So do I feel fulfilled doing X, Y, Z? And fulfillment is always derived by growth. And so growth, when you walk that back, relates to achievement. Achievement meaning growth. It's not about you got first place. It's like if you went from 10th place to 7th place, that brings you that fulfillment, which ultimately leads to your happiness. Or if you can only speak a word in Spanish, and now you can hold a five-minute conversation in Spanish, then that means you're growing. And so that's achievement, growth. And the only way you can have that achievement and growth is through focus. Are you practicing Spanish for at least a minute a day or a second a day? And so it's really about that focus to make sure that leads to that achievement growth that ultimately leads to fulfillment. And that's where the happiness is derived from. You kind of walked, I did it the inverse because everyone goes, yeah, I want to be happy. If I ask the room who wants to be happy, it's one question that it'll be 100% hands in the air. It's one of the rare questions that'll get 100% agreement. And so focus is the starting point to actually lead you down the path to get to that happiness. Although I might be the one flying the ointment because I would actually not put my hand up to happiness. I would actually put my hand up to having a meaningful life rather than a happy life. That's true. That's a good point. But you're meaningful. Yeah, you could get, we could get into the philosophy and be like, yeah, but it's, if your life's meaningful, then that means you're happy. So it's tricky. But the other thing, too, is that you should focus on joy joy in the moment, because sometimes happiness is based on a result that, oh, I wrote this book and it didn't sell any copies, so I'm not happy. Or I wrote this book and it sold a billion copies, so I'm super happy. But really, you should derive it from the joy. Did you enjoy writing the book, no matter what that outcome is, that it doesn't matter. I enjoyed writing this book. It helped me grow. And so I'd love it to sell a billion copies, but if it sold zero or sold one just to my mom, then we're good because I've got that joy. 
And actually, to have a meaningful life, you need to have just as much focus because otherwise you can get completely caught up in doing meaningless things because you're not actually saying the no. So how do you say no? Because when you say no to people, and I'm going to whisper this because we hate the idea, they might not like us. (laughs) Some of them will not like you because I heard someone the other day tell me, I can't believe this guy said no like this to me. Now, they should have nuanced the no better. That's what I told them. But first, a long no is a lot worse than a short no. Meaning that someone asks you, hey, do you want to come to this XYZ event? And in your mind, historically for me, I'd be like, ah, I should probably go to that. They want me to go. It'd probably be good for XYZ. But I'm not excited about it at the moment they ask. And I'm going to be less excited about it when I actually have to go. It's not going to get any better in that time. And so a quick no is better than a long no, meaning that if I waited a couple of days and then said, you know, I can't make it, or I'm not interested in your product, whatever it is, if it's a quick no, then that's better for that person. Obviously, that person wants it to be a yes, but the second best thing is a quick no, because then they can move on. It's just done. And if you're the first one to say no, it's a first mover advantage, because they might have asked that same question to six people. Hey, can you volunteer your time? And if you're quick, it's like, no. And most of the time in life, people never say, I like that person because they're wishy-washy. They'll say, I respect that person. I'd always like what they have to say because they're very blunt and direct. But I respect them because I always know where they stand. But yeah, I have systems in place. So for me to say no, if something comes in, it's generally, hey, this is a great opportunity. Sorry, I'm not gonna be able to take advantage of it. Hopefully someone else can. I'm heads down on my book, but I wish you all the best of luck. Is that what you mean by a nuanced no? You're actually giving us a little bit of explanation. You're saying some quite nice things. You're explaining that you're busy with your book and you're wishing us luck. Is that what you mean by a nuanced no? It is. Yeah, no, you're spot on. You got to put yourself in the other person's shoes, but also put yourself in the shoes of they're busy. They get it, right? They're like, I totally get that, that you're way too swamped for this. Now, in time, it's funny, I always say that you always aspire to be, let's say, Barack Obama or whoever your favorite person is that's uber famous. But if you're Barack Obama and he asks you to go to lunch or whoever your favorite person is, it doesn't matter, George Bush, whoever, you're the president of the United States, you're the prime minister, and you like that prime minister, is that they ask you to go to lunch, you're going to drop everything to go to that lunch. So in time, you want to aspire to be the person that no one cancels on. But in terms of saying no, yeah, you've got to get your systems in place to have those nuanced no's to where it's polite, but also you're letting them understand that they've been in that position too, where they've had to say no. And they go, I get it. This person doesn't have the bandwidth. At least they're up front and told me, no, can't do it. Now, when it comes to focus, what happens if all the competing tasks are important? You know, I've got my clients, I've got my podcast, I've got my partner, the dog needs a walk, I need to learn German because, you know, I live in Germany. (laughs) They're all important. Help me out, Eric. That's stimmt. They are all important. That is true. So everyone will have it. You'll have more that you can do. And a lot of people make the mistake of, oh, it's a time issue. And there's a Billion dollar industry around time management. I like to talk about energy management more than time management because if we got up two hours earlier tomorrow to get things done, most likely the science shows we're going to get less done because we're going to be tired. 
Or in a fantasy world, gave everybody 12 more hours, we would fill those hours up. Because there's so, it's a beautiful thing about life. There's so much you can do for whatever vocation that you're trying to attack. So I'm going to assume everyone out there has more than they can do, because most people do. There's more opportunities you can handle. So what we need to do is look at that list and then start to identify what's the one thing. Start with the one thing. Circle the most important thing. What's the one thing that makes everything else easier or unnecessary if I do it? Meaning there's a list of 20 things. If I do this one thing well, it might make it so these other things, I don't even have to do them if I do it really well. So for example, let's say on my list, I've got a public speak. That's mainly what I do, that I'm out there speaking at conferences. And I'm looking, I got to do podcasts. I've got to write books. I've got to write this blog post, blah, 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 down the line. And then on that list, it might say, get books to be on media outlets. So I looked on this list. I go, the one thing that I need to do well that makes everything else easier or necessary is to perform on stage. Because I'm on stage, there's 5,000 people in the audience. All of a sudden, that increases book sales because they want to get the book. It also, on stage more and more, all of a sudden, your name gets out there. Now, you don't have to do outreach for media because the media reach out to you. So all of a sudden, you can maybe remove that one from your list. So that's what I mean. Look at your list and then circle the one thing that you know is the most important thing that makes everything else either easier or unnecessary. And then you can kind of rinse, watch, and repeat to get those in order of importance. Another hack is you can write on a sheet of paper, you can write the item and then the importance and then how you're performing to that and identify the gaps. All right, keynote speaker, importance, 10. One out of 10, that's a 10. How are you performing to that? Like, are you getting booked enough? Let's say I put an eight. So that's a gap of two. Now I go down the list. Let's say I go podcast. Importance, let's say for me, that's a five. But I'm performing at a seven. All right, so I'm a plus two on that one. All right, if I were to borrow energy or time, I can borrow it from the podcast line. And I should move that to the top line, which is keynote speaking. So that's another way to kind of reorganize your list. My gosh, your mind works in a totally different way from mine. It's just fascinating <laughs> to hear this. So we're going to have focus on a program about focus. How's about that for planning for you? If you can only have five top tips on how to focus, what would they be? I've got the first one down as write it down. So tell me about that. Yeah. So first identify what's the big thing. So what's that one thing? That's number one. If you can write it down the night before, the reason you're writing it down is because inherently when we write something down, we're more likely to accomplish it. Second, if you do it the night before, it actually, your mind thinks that you've taken care of it for now. So you can sleep a little better. It's not racing through in your mind. I got to do this thing that you've put it on paper that your mind thinks, okay, that's taken care of for now. I can pick that up back in the morning because it's going to be there. And then I emphasize the morning. Everyone's different, but for 90% of the people, you do want to attack it in the morning. People that are night owls, they might adjust it on how they do it. But you want to have a spot to where you're going to attack this thing before the day attacks you. And you've got to allocate time towards it. And so that's what you fence it up. So you, you write it down, then you allocate time to do it. So for me, it's 30 minutes. It doesn't matter. You put 20 minutes, 10, just an hour. Block off that time to where you're not going to be distracted. And that's when you've got to attack that thing. And normally the morning's good again because the day really hasn't started. So 
you've got this thing done and now you're playing with quote unquote house money the rest of the day because you tackle the most important thing first. And you might even circle back to it if you have time, but it doesn't matter if you don't have time to circle back. You've actually moved the needle on that item that's the most important, whatever that might be, playing guitar, writing a book. So number one, we're going to write it down. And then your second top tip, which you've began to explain already, is to block off time. How tight are you on this time? You know, if your wife comes up to you and says, honey, can you dot, 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 do you block her off? Or is she allowed to come into that time? Yeah, no, she's not. Uh, If there's an emergency, absolutely. But that's rare. And so The key is if you can, this isn't practical for some people, but one, it might be you get up before the house is up. So that's not likely to happen. That you're up before the house is up. So you might even adjust what time you go to bed so that you get up earlier so you have that time. Other times it might be, if you're fortunate, you have a different part of the house, which is really hard to get to. People might have to walk upstairs. It's just isolated. Other times you might drive to, if it's open, like a coffee shop, So you got to figure out what's going to work. What are those blockers that work? I've even had people that are in the office. They go to a different floor in some weird room that no one knows. And that's their time. Now, also, you can get people on board to tell them what you're doing. Because everyone struggles with it. So like their eyes will light up and they go, oh, I can't believe that person can afford to do that. And then they go, wait, I can do that. I can block off a half hour. Why don't I do that? And so if you get people on the same page, that also helps as well, especially if you're working in the office, they'll be like, oh, that's Jill's time. Jill's, even if they discovered where you were on the fourth floor, whatever floor in that closet, she's always down there for that half hour. And then your third of your top tips is be present. So tell me about that. Yeah. So people that do yoga are a little better at this, but it's really about being present throughout the day. And so checking in with yourself Now, what I do on most days at the end of the day in a Google Sheet or Excel spreadsheet, you can write on paper if you want, but I like to track it over time. But I put down, was the day a plus one, a plus two, or a plus three? Or was it a minus one, minus two, or a minus three? And again, not every day I do that. It's crazy because how long does that take you? Five seconds. But we live busy lives. And then if I have time in the column next to it, I'll write down why did it make me happy or why did it make me sad? you know, what was causing this. And so over time, you can track that and see, oh, these are the patterns that make me happy or meaningful life for you. Oh, it was a meaningful day because I did X, Y, Z. And so you can track it over time. But just as important, your mind starts to get into the sense of during the day, pausing and asking yourself, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And is it should I be what I'm doing? And then you revert back to the plus one, plus two, minus one, minus two. So that you're going, man, I'm having like a minus two day. What can I do to get this to a minus one? And so being present and checking in like that's really great. It's really great for a lot of reasons. But like the two I mentioned, you can flip your day. Like, oh, I'm heading for a plus one. How do I get to the plus two? Or man, I'm on a negative two. How do I get it to a negative one? And then also you check it and go, how did I get down here? Why am I on Facebook for the last hour doing X, Y, and Z when I'm supposed to be doing this? And so it's a good way to check in. Now, sometimes in time you'll get good at it, but sometimes you'll set alerts in your phone to just kind of ping, vibrate to where you go, oh, whoa, what am I doing right now? Oh, okay, I got to get back on track. 
One of the things you write in your book that I like that sort of fulfills this idea of being present, you say, when walking, walk, when eating, eat. And how often do we actually do that? Not very often, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, you're right. I mean, think about you driving in a car. Sometimes you wind up a half hour later at your destination. You don't even know how you got there. So you're not present. Your mind's thinking about other things. So yeah, when you're walking, walk. When you're eating, eat. A lot of people ask me, how, my son, my daughter, they want to write a book. And I go, I'm going to preface this because you think I'm going to be terse with my answer. But it is true. If you want to be a writer, write. So let's have top tip number four, which is cowboy or cowgirl scheduling. Now, this sounds fascinating. What is cowboy and cowgirl scheduling? (laughs) So some of you might know the song Wide Open Spaces. And so what you want to do is cowboys and cowgirl scheduling is look at your calendar for today. So let's say it's Thursday and you want to fence off. So like a cowboy or cowgirl fence off that area. So like we talked about, you might fence off that half hour in the morning. You want to fence off as much as you can time for specific items. So for example, people want to grab coffee with you, then you'll fence off a time. Okay, my coffee times are Wednesdays, 9.30 to 10.30. That's my time for tea. That's my time for coffee with other people. So it starts to make things a little bit easier. Block off time for yourself. It might be, hey, I got to think strategically if you own a company. Or maybe you're in a company and and you know you've got to do strategic work, not just meetings, not just answering email. So block off that time. Okay, here's a half hour for strategic think time. And so you've got that fenced off, fencing these things off. And then most importantly, you got to lead wide open spaces. Like when Bill Gates and Warren Buffett first started to develop their relationship together, Bill was laughing at Warren because Warren has this paper, tiny notebook to handle his calendar because Warren's slipping through it and Bill's slipping through it. And Bill's like, you have five things on here for the month. He goes, yeah, I, I got to have time for myself. I got to think strategically. Bill was the opposite. He goes, as a good CEO, I thought I had to have every minute crammed and even didn't even have time to go to the bathroom. And so again, <laughs> the answer's in the middle there somewhere, but that's what we mean. Keep that wide open space for one opportunities, but also so that you can be present, can think a little deeper with some bigger picture stuff. Yeah, I would say one of the great things for deep thinking is having a dog because you have to schedule the time every day to walk the dog and that can be a time for you just to think. Some of my best ideas come walking the dog. So I love that idea of cowboy scheduling. Yeah, and you're not alone. There's some science behind it that when you're walking your dog or actually when you're in nature, if you even just see the color green. So even if you can't get out in the woods, to walk on a conference call, if you just see the color green, we're inherently wired to be out of nature. And so it actually increases your energy, which again, it's about energy management. So it actually helps your focus. And so it's just crazy to think just seeing the color green will help your mindset. And your fifth top tip is go for progress over perfection. Yeah. So think about the beginning of this year, most of us set really unrealistic New Year's resolutions. And so what we do is they're doomed to failure from the get-go because you're really striving. It's okay to go for perfection, but here's what I mean. So, okay, all right, it's a new year. I'm going to have my morning routine, my miracle morning. So I'm going to get up at 5 o'clock a.m. I'm going to have my green tea without any honey in it, just straight green tea. 
And then I'm going to do yoga for 30 minutes. And I'm going to write in my journal for 20. And then I'm going to do my gratitude for 25 minutes. And then you stop after day three because your morning routine is taking you to the afternoon just to do that routine. <laughs> <laughs> and so the key is just take those small steps. So I actually took the time to even look at all the Olympic long jumpers. And if you look at the Olympic long jumpers, their shortest step is right before their giant leap. And I think that's a great metaphor for all of us to just take those small steps and that will lead to the giant leap. And so when we say progress over perfection, it's really understanding that thinking about your life more in terms of a roller coaster, there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be ups and down seasons. But even from a day-to-day -day level, there's going to be a day when you didn't do your focus, that you had it blocked off, something happened, you just didn't do that half hour. And so you got to give yourself the grace rather than giving up where you're like, oh, I had 40 days in a row. Now it's just, I've messed it up. So I guess we're off track. But if you think about it like a roller coaster, you're like dip, dip, dip. And then think about taking a line across that roller coaster. As long as that line over time is going up, then you're good. You're going to have those ups and downs, but the line over time goes up. So that's why I say be persistent in the short term. So be very persistent in the short term, but be patient in the long term. Now, one of the things that I think stops people from focusing, at least my clients, is often they sort of get distracted by what I would call other people's business, you know, that mm -hmm. uh, rather than thinking, how can I do things differently? They have a lot, spend a lot of time trying to think about how their partner could do something differently. In fact, I use one of the phrases that you use, which is not my circus and not my monkeys. <laughs> so why would both of us like that phrase? You tell me why it speaks to you and then I'll explain a little bit more about why it speaks to me. Yeah, it speaks to me because, hey, first start with yourself. So you above all, not in a selfish way, but you can't help other people if you're not right. And so you've got to make sure that you're good, at least 90%, like you're never going to be perfect, but that you're solid. And then you can reach out beyond there. Then when you're looking at not my circus, not my monkeys, is that some of us inherently are kind of, we want to help, right? Meaningful life. But if you try to help everyone, you end up helping no one. So if you say yes, when we go back to yes, no, if you say yes to everyone, you are saying no to everyone because you're not going to be able to do the yes for everyone at the level that you need to do. And so a lot of times you got to look at some circus, like that's crazy what's happened in that person's life or, whoa, that's kind of wild over there, this pandemic, that's a big circus. I don't know what's going on, mask, no mask, blah, blah, blah. So you go, okay, that's not my circus. Those aren't my monkeys. Let's handle my kind of tent, my ring. I'm a ringleader over here, not for those items. So that I'm not going to control or have control over it. I'm going to control my tent and be the ringleader here where I have more control. And I love the idea of monkeys because monkeys are leaping up and down and sort of waving things in the air and easily distract you. And you can get pulled in by monkeys very quickly. I sometimes say, you know, it's a bit like herding cats. Well, you might as well try herding monkeys. You're wasting your time. And I love that image because it sort of gets you focused on what can I do? And, you know, basically, I'm not a monkey trainer, so it's not my circus. Walk on. I love it. No, you're right. We think about a monkey, they're so loud and distracting and waving things. That's why it's a good, good visual. 
Now, these days, a lot of people talk about manifesting, which is sort of where you think what you're going to want. Let's have an example. I want to have a, a, a great podcast. And if you think hard enough, you can manifest it. Is manifesting part of focus or is it something different? It is part of focus. And when I'm doing the research, I did come across a lot of that manifestation where if you write something down, like I want to become the number one motivational speaker in the world. But if you write it down every day, it often will manifest itself as a higher likelihood of happening. And there's also some studies about what you're named as a kid. So if your last name's bank, you're more likely to be a banker. And so I do think there's inherently, or a baker, you're going to be a baker, you know? So inherently, I think there is a lot to that. At least that's what the research showed. And myself, I find it, and I'm not good at this, like progress over perfection. You just reminded me that I've kind of let that slip. Is it writing down your intention as much as possible long-term? Now, I have done a good job of, at the beginning of the year, I do a visual board, and I make it black and white, and I draw it, either grabbing art from online or drawing it myself, just black and white. And then I constantly have that somewhere where I can see it. And then each month, I color in how much progress I've made in each area. So it reminds me, oh, doing well over here. Like, let's say I want to read 50 books this year. That's one of my things, read 50 books. So I've got a stack of books and I start to color them in because I'm ahead of the goal on that one. But then I said I was going to do more yoga. So I've got this image of this silhouette of a person doing yoga, downward dog. And I've only colored in like the toenail because I've done yoga maybe five times this year. And so but oh dear. it's a reminder of looking at that visual board as much as I can. And how many books have you read so far this year then? We're at, so far this year at 14. Oh, you're doing well. I assume you're choosing short books rather than long books. They're all over the map. If it's a business book, you can read a lot faster than a fiction piece because the business books, you can kind of read down the middle, speed read. But yeah, the fiction books take a little longer. Those could be quite thick. So I'm a silent partner in my wife's book club which that's a different podcast. We can talk, why don't men mm-hmm. have book clubs? Because <laughs> in the well, United States... Yeah, I belong to a book group. Okay. And unfortunately, we keep on choosing these incredibly long books. We're reading the Hannah Yanagara book, Paradise, and which is like three books in one. So perhaps under your system, I can count that as three different books. Um, maybe a bit of cheating <laughs> like that would help. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, people always ask me, hey, you want to play poker? I'm like, no, I'd rather be in a book club. I don't want to play poker. So it's not just a lack of focus that stops us achieving our goals. I think sometimes there can be things like fear and anxiety and all sorts of other things as as well. How do you deal with those other things that are are stopping us? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, when we look at businesses, the companies that we work with, the number one reason people don't take action is they're afraid to fail. So that culture within that individual and also within that organization is that they're afraid to fail. And so I always like to remind people that we all grew up kind of on a fallacy when it comes to sports or music. Most of us played a musical instrument or played sports growing up. And your instructor or your coach would always say, practice makes perfect, which is perfectly wrong. It's proper practice can lead to progress and improper practice can lead to problems or the wrong kind of permanence. And so Mm. when we hear about Silicon Valley that failure makes you better, that is wrong. It's evaluated failure makes you better. And when you do evaluated failure, actually failure is just part of the process. There's no overnight success with individual or company. There's going to be failures, and that's how you learn. 
So it's about fail fast, fail forward, fail better. Now, when I say that, and I'm talking to companies, I'm like, it's easy for me to sit here on stage and tell you to fail. That's super easy for me to do from stage here. But what we can do is you're afraid to fail because your brain is trying to protect you. And so there's little things we can do sometimes to help overcome that fear. One, you could write down other failures that have happened in the company and how they ultimately led to success or how a failure that you thought at the time was hurting you actually wound up happening for you. So instead of happening to you, it is happening for you. But there's also some fun things you can do. So if you actually stand like a superhero, so Amy Cuddy started this out at Harvard. It was much debated, but then they replicated it in 50 different universities. We've now done it with audiences in 55 countries. Works for about 96% of the people is that if you actually stand like a superhero, so standing like a superhero, your feet are a little wider, you got deep breath, your shoulders are back, you know, you got your fists on the side. And if you stand like a superhero, then it can help reduce the cortisol in your body about to 20%, which is that stress-inducing hormone. And then possibly we can have another one of your sayings that I rather like, leap and the net will appear. Yeah, there you go. You got to I'll say it's not reward, reward. You know, you got to take that leap. It's risk, reward. You got to take that leap and then the net will appear. Yes, indeed. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it can become a shared space, somewhere you can tell your thoughts and suggest ideas for a new podcast episode. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes. If you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com/podcasts you will find uh, details of how you can write to me and my guests to have one of your dilemmas discussed here on the programme. And my thanks to the listener that went to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast and wrote us this. Big problem. My wife has been in the USA for six years. We're married one year and both in our second marriages. I'm retiring in three years. She wants to move back to the UK full-time to be with her family and her grandkids, and I don't. I have suggested six months here and six months there, or even eight months there and four months here, to no avail. She wants one house and not a house and maybe a condo here. I have two older sons not married. She has parents, two grown daughters, two grandchildren, and one on the way. This seems like a no-win situation. She feels that I owe her it here because she stayed with me after her divorce. Whenever we talk, we get bogged down in the details. I can't move before retirement unless I find a job in the UK, which is unlikely, and we need the money. One minute it seems like we have to solve this problem today, and the next it's in the distant future. So the conversation goes in circles. Where should we live if we do move? When? How will we fund everything? What are the legal ramifications? Nothing gets resolved. Any ideas? Wow, that's a tricky one. 
The key is, like we talked about the nuances with saying no and yes, are to always make sure, hey, start every conversation. I'm listening to you. This is important. I love you. This is why it's important to me that we talk about this. If you can try to offer ideas, they might say, I don't like that idea because it feels cold. But sometimes you can do it a couple ways. One, figure out where you do agree. And so start with where you know there's agreement. And so then you start to get in the momentum and it helps. And you're like, okay, here's where we agree. Here's where we're running the kind of challenges. Now, just like the grid I talked about before, what you can do, you can do this collectively or you can do it blind. Each one does it separate. Write down your top 10 things, importance to you, and then figure out where there's alignment. But also that's when you have to figure out that compromise is that there's going to have to be a compromise sometimes. We agree to disagree. How do we compromise on this? I'm willing to give here. Can you give there? Not easy to do. And also understand that your brain might work differently than her brain and vice versa. One might be more emotional and one might be more logical, rational in terms of like, you've got a scientist over here. It's going to be black and white. And you've got a romance novelist over here. So you've got to also understand the differences on how you see things. So I'm always a big fan of getting it on paper as much as you can so that there aren't nuances in words. Because you might, he or she might say something in your brain's design, actually. Like if I'm giving a lecture at a university, so I speak at, like I teach at Northwestern University, there's 25 students, let's say, in that room, all executives. They'll hear what I say differently. Your brain's designed to keep it interesting to you to kind of keep you awake. And so literally everyone in that room's hearing what the exact same thing differently. So if they're up for it, you got to ask for it because that can also cause a rift. Like you're just so mathematical, but you can, hey, would it help if we just kind of wrote down these things on paper so then we can check them off as well as we kind of come to a conclusion on something so we're not rehashing the same thing. So we're kind of moving towards that growth. Again, This isn't an easy answer because I don't know the two people involved and they have two different minds of anyone in the world. But it's trying to figure out just being as open and keep repeating, hey, we're in this together. This is why we're doing it. And then maybe set up timeframes to tackle it. So you're like, all right, we're only going to go after this for 20 minutes. That seems to be our sweet spot. (laughs) At that point, it comes off the rails. Or at any point in time, set up, we can call a timeout to pause this when it starts to get more emotional. Uh, Let's just call a timeout. Set up, set up some kind of rules of engagement, so to speak. I love your idea of actually starting it all with, I love you. I want to listen to you. This is important to me. I mean, I think that gets us into a really good state of mind. I think you're also very right when you start talking about the two different mindsets, because he's coming up with lots of practical ideas. And I, my suspicion is she's going to be much more emotional. I mean, I would really want to understand this. She feels that I owe it to her because she stayed with me after her divorce. Now, I would really like you to listen to that story because she has a story. Now, you might not agree with the story, but if you listen to it, rather than try and pick holes in it, she is first of all going to want, is going to feel heard and that's always going to help. 
So do listen to it, you know, ask for clarifications, Be really allow her to actually say her story. Because if you start picking holes in it or telling her your position, all she will do is start defending her story. Mm-hmm. And then you're in I'm right and you're wrong sort of kind of territory. If you really let, let her say her story, she will probably then begin to start talking about, oh, yes, I, I might have felt that he owed me, but actually that's possibly too strong a word. And she might begin to row back a little bit. But I suspect that at the moment, she's not actually getting a chance to truly, deeply say her say. Now, you might think you've heard this all a million times before, and you probably have here, there and everywhere, but it hasn't actually been told the full story in all its glory. And until you're actually getting the full story in all its glory and all the bits put together, you can't really deal with it. No, that's a really good approach. I love that. And also, if you hear the full story, then you'll understand okay, this actually makes sense for why you said that. It doesn't make sense from a black and white perspective. So an example would be my friend, she wanted to invest in a property in the south of France. And so they collectively, the husband and wife, get a place in the south of France because they have family there. Her mindset is, well, when we can, we'll rent it and we can rent it for the year. And then his mindset was, no, 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 that's by my parents' house. I only want to rent it for like a month, even if we can get a year contract. And I only want to rent it for a month because I want to have my place. But she's looking at like, well, that doesn't make any sense because we can rent it for the year and we can use, we'll have enough money to stay at the nicest hotel that's right by your parents. But then once she allowed him to tell a story, like, no, no, it's just more of an emotional place for me. Then it's more of an emotional place for me. Then, then she said, okay, I get that. It logically does not make sense from a financial perspective. But if that's important to you, then that's why we have money then we'll just take that as a loss, that that's just one of your things that makes you feel better. So, Eric, thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Anytime I can help people. So at the, when we talk to our entertainment company, it's have fun and help people. And so that might be one person. It might be 50 million people. Our goal is to help 7 billion people. And if you're a very overachiever, you're like, wow, that's kind of understating your goal. Aren't we close to 8 billion people in the world? But yeah, it's just really trying to set those big, hairy goals to how can I help someone else? That really is what brings fulfillment in my life and meaning, as you said, having that meaningful life. Can I help somebody else? I think that's really interesting to actually have focus on your meaning. And you've got it down to have fun and help people. And that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. This is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, or you subscribe directly through Apple, then you will be able to hear the rest of our conversation. And if you want to know about that, here it comes. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Super, 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 super. Super you. 